We're making our way through John's Gospel, and we're looking at chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 this morning. You can turn there in your worship guides or uh, uh, in your Bibles. I was very excited about this text this morning until for the first time in perhaps all of my church history, if not certainly from my ministerial history, you know, being in the church as a pastor, um, I, I have heard Jesus Christ likened to Chuck Norris. And that is an image that will not escape my mind for a long time to come. Thank you, Pastor Zach Pummel. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Let's see if we can go and have our minds healed by God's Word. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the selling oxen, I'm sorry, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what it was, that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Jesus was angry. He was so angry, he fashioned a whip of cords and drove out the, uh, the merchants, those selling animals and those changing money uh, from the temple along with the animals. Now, boys and girls, as you may work through your children's uh, worship guide, you also have a sheet of paper, and that is a pretty amazing picture to draw this morning. And can you imagine the look on Jesus' face? Or the look on the faces of the merchants who are being chased over, or people running and trying to grab the money that's spilling on the ground? And the religious leaders in the background saying, Who is this guy? Who does he think he is that he can come in and do all this? And you can work on drawing that picture this morning. Um, and if you like what you draw, go ahead and label it and put your name on it. You can bring it up to me after the service because we're going to start to collect and hang up pictures of the different images and stories that we encounter in John's Gospel. And it will help us to think through and be reminded of what we've covered in the sermon series. Now, for those of you who are a little bit older, who may not be uh, keen on drawing a picture, we challenge you to think about what does it mean that Jesus is consumed with zeal for his father's house. What does that mean? Why is he cleansing the temple? And what does it mean that when Jesus starts to talk about the temple, he's actually talking about himself? What does it mean that Jesus is the temple? 
These are some of the questions that you can consider this morning and today. There'll be some questions on the city for you to consider as a family this week as you begin to think and process the passage before us. And now for you adults, the way that we're going to engage this passage is to consider first, the temple is corrupted. And then number two, the temple is rebuilt. Number three, what it means to be a faithful stone in that temple. Number one, the temple is corrupt. Number two, the temple is rebuilt. Number three, what does it mean to be a faithful stone in that temple? So first of all, the temple is corrupted. The temple is the very place where God dwelt. It's a place where heaven and earth met. We don't live in a world or in a religion in which we conceive of God being uh, relegated to one particular locale. So it's very difficult for us to get our minds wrapped around the significance of this building. It was God's house on the face of the earth. It was a place where the relationship of God's people would be made right through sacrifice. Uh, it's where they came together. It's where they were quiet and worshipped and heard His voice. The place was holy, and its uniqueness was intended to be to be a place that was set apart from the foolishness and evil of this world, a place where you uniquely encounter God. At the time of our story, the Passover is, is taking place, which means the Jews from all over the Mediterranean world are traveling to Jerusalem to participate in this annual celebration of God's mercy. So animals are going to be sacrificed, which means people have to be able to buy animals. They're not carrying them all the way from where they've come. And because people are coming from all different kinds of countries, you need to exchange currencies. You need money changers. Well, if you actually need people who sell animals, and you need people who change currencies, then what is the deal here? You couldn't couldn't have going on at the temple what was supposed to be going on uh, with the temples, but when Jesus gets there, he's very upset with these people. He cleans house. So what is going on? Jesus, as he sends them away, he says, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The animal merchants and the money changers had taken their professions and gone into the temple and they had made God's house intended for worship a house of profit. It no longer was a place for them to meet God. It was a place for them to manifest their greed. Now, if you think about that for a minute, dig down a little bit deeper, that's actually a scary thought. Because it reveals to us that the evil of the human heart, sin, can actually corrupt what God gives to us for His worship. The temple was a gift of God intended for His people to draw near to Him, and instead, the evil in their heart corrupted it, so it no longer became a house of worship of God, but it became a house of worship for something else, for what they desire, for money, for profit. And that is a scary reality, that we can take something that's intended for holiness and use it for idolatry. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The merchants and the money changers in the temple 
had decided that they would serve money rather than God. You know, what would it have looked like then if they had decided to serve God in the midst of their profession in the temple? They would have asked questions like this. Well, how do we sell fairly animals to the people who are coming? What's a fair price to charge? How do we ensure that some of the people with less means can still get an animal for sacrifice? Or for the money changers, what's a fair commission to charge to exchange this currency? Maybe the question isn't how do we fill our pockets the most, but how do we help everyone to worship God with the most integrity? These are the kinds of questions that would have directed the money changers and the uh, merchants selling animals if they had really been intent on worshiping God in God's house of worship rather than loving money. Now, I will say, just as an aside, that we can do this with anything. Right? The, the matter at hand in the story of Jesus cleansing the temple is money. But if our love and affection is placed anywhere else, then it can co-opt anything of worship that's intended to be part of worshiping God is something that we then use to serve the thing that we really love. If, if my first love is my children, then the church doesn't become a place to worship God. It becomes a place that facilitates giving my children everything that I want. If I worship friendship, then the church doesn't become a place to worship God. It becomes a place to make sure that I have the kinds of relationships that I want to experience. We have to realize that our hearts can always take the things that God gives to us by His grace for us to grow in His grace and corrupt them. The example here particularly, the issue happens to be money, and money is a big issue. Jesus talks about money pretty much more than about any other subject of sin. And so why is money so enticing? Why is it so alluring? It's a hard question because we realize that money doesn't really offer what it promises. We tend to think that it offers happiness or security. People gravitate to money for different reasons. People don't tend to love money just for money. You don't very often meet someone who just says, yeah, I've got this barn of money and it's awesome. I like to go jump in it. Right? It's, they love money for what love money brings them. Some people love money for power. I can control the things around me with money. I can control people. Some people love money because it brings security. Well, I really don't have to worry if something happens or if something unexpected happens. I've got plenty, you know, of buffer. My security is all bound up. Some people love money for what it brings them, pleasure or just materialism. I feel better when I can buy something new. It feels like I'm new. For different reasons, we gravitate to the love of money. What's been fascinating, um, particularly in the last, say, 25 years or so, uh, social psychology and psychologists focusing on social behavior. It's really something of a new science has exploded. One of the things that they've demonstrated over and over again is that money is a disappointing enterprise. And part of you knows this. You've all heard the innumerable stories, right? The majority of people who win the lottery end up regretting that they won the lottery. The majority of people interviewed after winning the lottery wish that they could rewind and go back and not win the lottery. That should teach us something about money. Right. But again, there are numerous studies. And fascinatingly, um, there was an enormous study done uh, in, which involved almost half a million Americans. Princeton researchers were cooperating with uh, Gallup. And they came to the realization that, yeah, you know, money makes you a little bit happier. 
until you reach roughly the mark of $75,000. After $75,000 annually, money doesn't make any difference in happiness. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, yeah, well, there's something to that, because I know if I was making more than $75,000 annually, I'd be a little bit happier. Listen, this is what they find, that even as incomes grow, happiness does not grow at all, past this point of, be, of being able around the $75,000. Social scientists are why. We think that with more money, more happiness would grow if money brings happiness. So that isn't the case at all. So why doesn't it? They think one, one aspect of this, I'm going to talk about several aspects of this, but one aspect, and how important is this? What is our community love, right? You, you move to Rockwell for a little more house, a little more yard. You move because your dollar has more power and gets you more of what you want. So we have to think deeply about money and whether it really brings happiness and, what, and how, to what degree we're loving it. And so they said part of this idea is overindulgence. Now you get the notion, if, right? Every Thanksgiving you overindulge. You eat more than you should, and you get to a certain point, and you say, oh, that was really pleasurable, but at some undiscernible moment, it stopped being pleasurable, and I kept going. And now I'm in a place where I really regret the calories that I've committed to, because I'm not feeling so good. That's what overindulgence is, and we, humanity, has this incredible propensity to overindulge in all kinds of categories. Every one of you can think of an area in your life in which you would admit, I tend to overindulge in this area. You know what's fascinating that I learned this week? Right? We talk about overindulgence culturally all the time. Did you know that underindulgence is not a word? <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? That blew my mind. You can't, you get, look it up, dictionary.com. It doesn't exist. Right? It's not a word that we need. Apparently, because we don't talk about underindulging in anything. We just tend to overindulge in things. So, you can probably anticipate this a little bit, but a, a man named uh, Jordy Quidbach performed a study uh, uh, with chocolate lovers, and he broke them into two groups. And uh, he gave both of them some great chocolate, enjoy this chocolate. And then he asked Group A to lay off of chocolate for a week. He gave Group B a two-pound bag of chocolate. And he said, listen, I want you to eat chocolate anytime you want. Right? You don't have to make yourself uncomfortable, but eat it when you feel like it. And enjoy it all week. Two, two pounds is yours. So they came back a week later and they had another chocolate tasting. Which group do you think reported greater enjoyment and pleasure in the tasting of chocolate? Obviously group A. Right? They hadn't had chocolate all week. The group that had been overindulging in chocolate, their pleasure in it had gone down. And they didn't take pleasure uh, in the tasting of the chocolate the week to, that followed. The reality is that at a certain point, having more of something does not actually increase enjoyment. It decreases enjoyment. So it is with money. The more you have of it, it is, doesn't increase enjoyment. But how counterintuitive. How often are you sitting at your desk going over your taxes or thinking about the cost of the coming year and saying to yourself, oh, if we just had... $10,000 more dollars. If we just had $15,000 more dollars. 
Always the promise, the expectation, yes, if there was more, then there would, it would be easier and there would be greater pleasure and greater happiness. Know that that is not true. It's not only that we are fooled by uh, tendencies to overindulge, but it's also that we're realizing that money has very negative influences and an impact on an individual. Money doesn't actually, um, you know, we tend to think of money as a tool that simply will make our life easier. Do you realize that money is also something that influences the holder and shapes your character? Paul uh, Piff is a professor of psychology and social science, and he's someone who uh, has focused on the effects of money in people's lives. He's done uh, tons, uh, numerous studies, and here's just a small sampling of a couple of observations he's made. Uh, one uh, is that one study was that he. Um, he broke up a hundred uh, or two hundred people into pairs to play Monopoly, and so as he as he sets up the Monopoly teams of two to play, one person is favored in the game. Uh, the the rich players, as they were called, are given um, twice as much money to start with, collected twice the salary when they passed go, and rolled both dice instead of one so they could move a lot farther. So at the start, one player starts with significant advantage. Now, what's observed in as the game gets played? The rich players move their pieces more loudly, banging them around the board, and display the type of enthusiastic gestures you see from a football player who's just scored a touchdown. Moreover, the rich players' understanding of their situation was completely warped. After the game, they talked about how they'd earned their success, even though the game was blatantly rigged, and their win should have been seen as inevitable. How, how amazing, how ridiculous that in a game of Monopoly where they're easily favored at the beginning, they, they proceed in the game, they easily win, and then they act like this triumphant football player, and they're like, yeah, of course, it was inevitable that I would win. Don't you know the financier that I am? We, think, we hear that in a study on a Monopoly game and think that's ridiculous, but you don't have to think very long to think of someone that you've met or had a relationship with, who was born into a rich family, didn't have to work through college, got it through connections, got a good job on the way out, and why are they successful? Well, they worked so hard. Right? It was by virtue of their own skills and abilities by which they find themselves where they are. And so often we forget that the grace of God saturates every aspect of life, and the only reason that you're even not here and destitute in a village in India is because God had you born here. Everything you have, everything you experience is by the grace of God. None of it is your possession. And yet, how keen culture is to teach us that, yeah, we, we take credit for what we have, for what we've accomplished. Another study demonstrated that rich people are less generous. Right? When people were given $10, right? Take this large group, everybody gets 10 bucks. And they say to them, listen, you can keep it, or you can give some of it to a stranger. It's yours to do with how you please. So the people go out, and then they follow up with the people. Those who made less than $25,000 a year gave 44% more to strangers than those making one hundred fifty dollars to $200,000 per year. 
Similarly, on average, households making 50000 to 75000 gave 7.6% of their income to charity, while those who made 100000 or more gave 4.2% to charity. The more money you have, the less generous you are. It actually makes you hold on to it more tightly. One more. Money can make you think that you are more important than other people. In California, it's law that you have to stop for pedestrians at a crosswalk. And so several intersections were observed for long periods of time, hundreds of cars passing through the intersections. The cars were ranked based on the purchase price. Do you know that those who were driving the most, the least expensive car didn't break the law once? They always stopped for the pedestrian. Those that drove the most expensive car broke the law close to 50% of the time. But the more money you have, the more important you are, and the less important other people are. Those are pretty serious, significant negative impacts that money has on the human heart. Now, will money necessarily make you like that? No. We can think of rich, generous, gracious people. But in our love of money and the quest of money and the things that it brings us, what do we see? We see that, oh, it actually doesn't bring the happiness that we think it will bring. Not only that, but it makes us value other human, pe- other human beings less. It makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And it adds to a sense of entitlement. It changes us. It changes who we are. It corrupts. It it corrupts to the extent that you have God's people who confess with their mouth that they are entirely dependent upon God's grace, that there is chosen people representing Him in this world. And then with their hands and with their hearts, they love money and try to take advantage of one another at the very temple where He's worshipped. The temple became absolutely corrupted by the human heart. We have the same propensity, whether it's money or something else that we love. If the temple is corrupted, if, if the very gift of God can be corrupted by the human heart, then what's our hope? Our hope is that Jesus will rebuild the temple, and indeed He does. The Jews were shocked by what Jesus had done, and they demanded a sign. They challenged Jesus, okay... Show us a sign. Interestingly, John up to this point has used sign in an entirely positive sense. That's what's giving testimony to Jesus. But here it's entirely ambiguous. It's a test of Jesus' authority. In the other Gospels, the question is phrased, okay, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? You come in here, you clean house, we're really angry. We have the power to put you to death. Let's see, who are you? Who's backing you? Where does this come from? And we have to realize that the demand for a sign in the Gospels and in the New Testament is seen as a way to avoid real faith. Like you might think, well, of course, you ask for a sign. That seems reasonable. Jesus is making bold claims. Am I really going to believe who he is? I want a sign that testifies to his authority. That's what the Jews are asking for. The Gospels always portray this as an avoidance of truth. Not an embracing of truth. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that Jews demand signs as a way of avoiding being confronted by the cross of Christ. So, sometimes we too. Jesus, you know, I would, 
I will, I'll be quick to obey here if you can answer some of my requests or petitions. You know, you're feeling a bit distant. When you start to come through, then I will start to get my ducks in a row. It's the same notion, right? Give me a sign. Come through a little bit for me. Demonstrate your power, and then I will be faithful. I think a parenting analogy is helpful here when we think about what's going on. Imagine that you tell a child, or imagine parents tell a child to clean a room. And the child, the 10-year-old comes up and says, okay, by what authority do you demand this of me? If you're a parent, how do you react? If you're not a parent, you might think through. You say, oh, well, that's a fair question. Let me think. I need to establish my authority so that then you, the 10-year-old, will go and obey and clean your room. So, um, you know, there are biblical reasons for my authority, and I'm bigger, and um, I feed you and clothe you and pay for everything. Right? No, you don't go down that road. You don't feel the need to demonstrate or prove your authority to the child. You say, oh, I'm going to show you my authority if you don't get up there and clean that room. (laughs) Now, we learn from that if we start to think about our relationship with God. You you don't go down that road of endorsing the child's request or challenge. First, simply it's not respectful, right? But even more importantly, secondly, what if you did? Talk about unloving. You would be endorsing an entirely faulty paradigm in your child's perspective that would not only not help them navigate childhood, but would make them pretty dysfunctional adults. The idea that they can demand you to demonstrate your authority from a posture of being 10 when you, your life experience and your position as God has placed you as their parent is ridiculous. By playing along, you endorse that ridiculous nature. They can say, oh yeah, okay, I got, I now concede your authority, I'll go clean my room. You've embraced, you've facilitated and endorsed their faulty understanding of the world. And so God would do the same thing. If you simply said, yeah, okay, give me a sign. I said, all right, what do you want? You know, okay, yep, water into wine, back to water again. Are you ready to obey? Well, I was thinking a bigger sign, something more impressive, right? Because you know that's what your heart would do. And so God loves us and not get Jesus. He knows what's in the heart of man. You notice that bit at the end too about how incredibly lonely Jesus must have been. He knows what's in the human heart. And it says he could not entrust himself to anyone. How phenomenally lonely to go through the world in that fashion. To not to know the wickedness in men's hearts and that he could not entrust himself to anyone. Why would he come and do that? Why would he come and tell the Jews, say, listen, this really isn't about the building. Because he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And after the resurrection, the disciples understand that Jesus is talking about his body, not the temple. And it encourages their faith. So when Jesus comes, it says that he cleanses the temple, he chases out the money changers and the animal merchants, because the zeal for his father's house has consumed him. It's a quote from Psalm 69. But it's not really about the building, is it? The building's going to be destroyed. The Romans will knock down the temple in 70 AD. Jesus is saying, I'm replacing the temple. 
So the zeal for his father's house, the cleansing of the temple, is more a demonstration to help the people understand what's transpiring because Jesus is becoming the real temple and the zeal for his father's house will ultimately mean that it will consume him. He will be rent asunder so that the temple, which is intended to include us, will be cleansed. Do you get the significance, the meaning of what's being alluded to here? Jesus says, tear down this temple, and in three days it will be raised again. The temple is a place that, that where God's presence dwells and navigates the relationship between God and His people. And what Jesus is saying, this temple won't work anymore because I am the place where God dwells. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And God intends to fill you as His temple with His Spirit, but He can't do that yet because you're so wicked. You must be cleansed. As the money changers and the animal merchants are run out of the temple, so the evil and contamination in you must be run out as well. And that will only happen when I, the true temple, am torn down. But it's okay that you tear me down because I'll be raised up on the third day. And when that happens, it's not only I who will be the temple, but all those who are with me. See, Jesus redefines what's going on by making himself the temple and what's going to happen. But we understand too from the New Testament that it's not just Jesus that is the new temple. It is all that is incorporated into Jesus. And this is where we have to talk about being a faithful stone. You know, the New Testament is, um, speaks of us being the temple in two different ways. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul will say, that you are the temple. He writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. But at the same time, right? so Paul says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit as an individual. But at the same time, Peter says, no, the church is the temple. That all of you are a stone that's being built into one grand temple in which God is worshipped. He writes, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You, as an individual, are a temple, and you are also a stone that is part of the temple of God. His Spirit dwells in you. His Spirit dwells in the community in which we are gathered. Why? so that we would be equipped by His Spirit to render sacrifices that are acceptable in His sight, so that, that we wouldn't make the mistake of the, the Jews in the first century, the money changers and the animal merchants, but instead we would worship with right worship. And so we must wrestle. As we look to Jesus, who says, zeal for my Father's house is consuming, that means that that zeal for His Father will consume Him and incorporates us into the temple. Are we now experiencing zeal for our Father's house in the way that our Lord does. A zeal for His worship in the way that Jesus holds out to us. Well, Again, we could take any number of examples, but if we just took the example of money, do we really understand, as First Peter tells us in 4.10, that each of you has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, which we just read, that you are not your own, you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your whole being. 
If we take money as the example and realize where we are as part of the temple of God, filled with the Spirit on the other side of the resurrection, then our questions become, how do we honor, honor God and worship Christ with our resources? Well, it begins by understanding none of them are our own. They're given to us by the grace of God as a gift that they might be used for His glory and the edification of His body. What does that look like? Proverbs 19.17 tells us, Whoever is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will repay him for his deed. Matthew 25 tells us that as we do it under the least of these, we have done it under Christ Himself. Luke holds out to us the promise that as we give, it will be given unto us. So do you understand what's transpired in the temple? If you understand what's transpired in the temple, then you understand that Jesus is mad as mad can be because the very thing intended for worship has been corrupted by money and now is used to worship in idolatrous fashion money rather than the living God. So Jesus tears down that temple and rebuilds it in the tearing down and resurrection of his own body in which we, by faith, are incorporated into that temple, now the very dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And so is your body and your relationship here and everything in your life now used to glorify and worship God or does it continue to be corrupted and used to worship other things in an idolatrous fashion? Every year I meet a couple of people who tell me that they've landed at the church they've landed at uh, because of the business connections it affords them. And I think, my goodness, John 2. You're not there to worship. You're there to worship something that you can get there. In what ways are your love and affection placed on something that then has the ability and the opportunity to corrupt our worship? As you come to the table this morning, be reminded that, that the zeal for His Father's house is also His zeal for you because you are the Father's house now. His zeal is so great that He would lay down His life that you might be built into a holy temple. How could we not labor at faithfulness given that sacrifice? Celebrate this morning Christ's zeal for you as we come to the table. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we marvel at your love, the loneliness of your life, at your willingness to to enter into this world and to see such corruption, to see uh, the people, the very whom, the very people whom you came to save, using your temple as an opportunity for gain. We ask for your forgiveness as we have done this in our own hearts, and we pray that you would forgive us, but. In that forgiveness, we pray that you would be really building us as well. Tear down our sin and our evil and our selfishness. Tear down our our idolatry. We pray that Trinity Harbor Church would not be a place where sin can hide. And in that place of that old self being destroyed, we pray that you would make us anew. And that even now, we would begin to taste the resurrection and its power. Be nourished by what you have provided in the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood, for which we give you thanks and we marvel and celebrate. We thank you for your zeal, that it is pure and true 
and that it has resulted in our salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.